Hey, Bells, welcome to Team Up Moves. I'm Fiona. And I'm Stephanie, and this is the podcast where we play superhero-themed tabletop role-playing games and then talk about them. Except this episode, we are not going to be playing anything, and we're not going to be ta- we're going to be talking about talking about them. It is our first giant annual episode, Steph. What's going to happen today? We're going to get so meta. We're going to talk about what we've learned in a year of doing this, what we look forward to in next year of doing this. We are going to think about systems. We are going to answer a whole bunch of listener questions, which I'm super excited to get to. And if we have time, we might even talk about how New Arcadia works. We'll see. <laughs> surprisingly well. Uh, let's let's call that. I think it's, it's a surprisingly functional city, uh, New Arcadia. It's a city of surprises. There you go. As is New Olympia, which, you know, we might get back to someday. Yeah, who knows? It, it seeps in from time to time. So how are things? How's this year been of Team Up Moves? How are you feeling about this? I, I love it because I am, all my head's always in the Bronze Age and I always want to be like Chris Claremont. And that means I never want anything to end ever. Every time I pick up a character or a subplot, I just want to keep it going forever. <laughs> and uh, so those are my biases. But that said, I love it. I really love thinking about what we've learned and I'm super excited to go back and think about the guests we've had and about the listeners we've picked up. Yeah, and we have played 11 games since starting last July and I I think we picked some good ones. I think that it's it's been a good variety of things. We've had a great variety of players. I have had just a, a ton of fun GMing. I think I've grown as a GM even in, in this amount of time. So, oh yeah, you know, I, I couldn't be happier with the show at this moment. Oh yeah, yeah, and you know, even we've played games I knew I would like, and we've played games that I didn't know what to expect that I loved, and we've played games that did not fit my play style quite so well, but which were so much fun and which showed me a lot of things about how superheroes as a kind of character work. And also showed me, and we can stick this one in the refrigerator to come back to it, that superheroes are a kind of character you can play in an RPG or write a story about. Superheroes are not a kind of story in the way that solving a murder mystery or winning a battle in a war or winning the hand of your loved one is a kind of story. Superheroes are a kind of character who are suited to some kinds of stories. And we've seen a lot of different kinds of stories and different systems that are suited for different kinds of stories, even if they all include characters who can, you know, fly and walk through walls. Yeah. Well, I think that's probably a a good segue to our first listener question. Uh, This is from Chris Longhurst. Hi, Chris. Fan and also designer of C Issue X, pal of ours on Twitter. Steph, why don't you read this out? Okay. Chris Longhurst asks, how many superhero games do you still have in the queue? Which is the most obscure? Are you worried about running out? (laughs) We are not worried about running out. Um, So... I I counted in our document, there are 57 games in there, and that actually doesn't include some that I've picked up more recently and I'm planning to run this year. So we have several years worth of games oh, good. right now. Good, good. <laughs> and and actually like and, and it's and it's I do not even attempt to be comprehensive. So I think that 
you know, like if I ever worry about running out, we'll, we'll link to this. Um, Lowell Francis at his Age of Ravens blog has been doing like these year by year history of superhero RPG posts. Ooh. And each year there's just like six or seven. So it's it's huge. As you say, it's a it's a type of character. So there are all sorts of different ways of uh, of playing games about it. And people have written those. Yeah, one of the things that I've been just seeing with, you know, friends who and honestly, uh, you know, young people who end up in my house who are are very young, who seem to be interested in is they learn systems uh, such as Dungeons and Dragons, which are not designed for superheroes remotely and not designed for a contemporary setting remotely. And then they want to be Spider-Gwen. And somebody who, you know, maybe an eighth grader or maybe someone professionally involved in the RPG world figures out how to adapt that existing system so that there can be superheroes in it. And these adaptations, I think we saw this when we played, uh, played Cypher, when we played Claim the Sky, these adaptations are sometimes kind of strange kludges and they suit some kinds of stories and heroes better than others. But one of the reasons why I'm not worried about ever running out of these games is that if we want a if we get tired of or want to break from newly designed from scratch indie games, there are so many hacks of existing systems that are often pretty popular systems that put superheroes into those worlds. So yeah, we're we're not going to run out of games. Yeah, I would actually say that there is probably an argument to be made that D and D is more of a superhero game than maybe it comes across at first blush. Once you get up to like level 10 and that kind of thing with your characters, it's it's much more like superhuman power fantasy than, uh, you know, gritty dungeon delving at that point. I think that is absolutely correct. And this is going to lead into a discussion of uh, Neil Gaiman and his collaborators 1602, which is an Elizabethan setting for Marvel superheroes. The the real difference, the, the reason I'm thinking of D&D is, you know, this isn't designed for superheroes, even though it's absolutely a superheroic power fantasy once you get beyond, honestly, like third level, yeah. is that D&D is designed for high magic worlds where either the, the the GM has to build out the world or you have to pay $500 to get the worlds they've built out for you rather than being designed for a world that has, you know, the Empire State Building and Oregon's mail-in ballot system and Arizona's water problems. Like, it's not designed for superpowers and contemporary settings. And again, I think I'm being very Bronze Age about this because I really <laughs> like that we have been able to bring in things like inadequate protection for labor organizing and inadequate function of our funding of urban mass transit into our superhero stories. And I don't think D&D is designed for that. But you could. Yeah, I mean, I come on. I, I played a labor organizer. <laughs> that's that's where I'm going. I think that would be there. I don't think D&D is designed for labor organizing, although maybe that's just a straight charisma role. I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. Okay. But <laughs> so regardless, there is no way we are playing D&D on this podcast. No, we're not. So don't worry about that. No, we're not. No, we're not. <laughs> it was just an example. It was just an yeah, example. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so Chris asked what our most obscure game is. And I, I'm not entirely sure. Um, obscurity, I think, is is sort of relative. I mean, I'm new enough to the hobby that pretty much anything published before 2020 feels obscure to me. But I do like, you know, searching for superhero on itch and finding some things. Um, there's those of us who know better, which is a like a specifically trans superhero game, which we might play. I, I feel like we need to find some trans guests, though. And, <laughs> you know, 
That might be hard. <laughs> we have um, had cis guests. I should point out to our cis <laughs> listeners that we have had several cis guests. I don't want to out anyone as cis. I don't want to like clock anyone as cis, okay. so I won't like say who they are. It's okay. Cis listeners are always welcome. <laughs> um, my girlfriend is secretly evil as well. If we want to get into like, you know, it's it's the lesbian urge to kiss someone who's trying to destroy the world. Uh, yeah. So those are ones that I think are are probably maybe less well known. Though I, you know. Maybe we will bring them out of obscurity. We'll see. We're still kind of obscured. <laughs> so. I, I would, I mean, obscurity is relative. I would welcome playing those of us who know better. I would want to think about how my girlfriend is secretly evil would work for me as a, a player because that might be a, a challenge for me, but it also might be an <laughs> awesome challenge. And I think it might end up with Everyone thinks my girlfriend is secretly evil, but she's actually just trying to save the world and don't care, doesn't care what you think of her. Because that's, you know, that's where I'm coming from. I do want to mention another obscure game that this began as a joke, but I think I actually want to play it. It's a game that, as far as I know, no one has, has played yet. Oh, yeah, that, right. You cannot beat the obscurity of this game, Steph. What is it? <laughs> it is being Chris Claremont, an, an actual playable game that with a good deal of input from Fiona and from friend of the show and sometime guest Rachel Gold, I have designed and I really want to see how it works. And if there is an audience for playing the game and following the game, it is our audience. That's fair. So yeah, there it is. That is our most obscure game, Chris. Being Chris Claremont. No one has played it. It's that indie. <laughs> it is also, uh, you know, available through the show if you want one just write us and you'll get it under a copy left lesson i don't you know it's i'm not like the kind of I, I don't feel up to charging for it you know oh sure just write the show if you want it well yeah show at teamupmoves.com i keep wanting to make it like sign up for our mailing list and you get it for free like in a link but um i just haven't i, I think it's sometimes i don't do things even if i, I want to do them <laughs> maybe we should do that right now it's available yeah. on request uh but i i do kind of love the idea that we could could put it up there. Now I'm having ideas about about how, you know what? We should play test it first. We should play test it on the show and <laughs> okay. then we should put it in a link. Cool, cool. All right. Uh, next question. Ryan, who is evitable fate or evitable fate? Uh, not entirely sure. On I Twitter? Think I think it's evitable fate because evitable fate? Ryan okay. is not inevitable. Uh, Ryan can avoid their fate. Okay. All right. So they asked, which of the systems you have tested would be best to run either heavy hitting sparring between team members or the more serious inter-team slash team breaking combat? What do you think about this stuff? So like what sort of stories is Ryan kind of recalling here with this type of inter-team fighting? So Ryan is, I think, referring to two different kinds of stories, which are very well suited to two different kinds of games that we've played. One is the kind of story, and I think here about something like Marvel's Contest of Champions or other big two books where the plot is designed to answer the question, you know, if Iron Man fights the Vision, who would win? If the Scarlet Witch fights Dr. Fate, who would win? The answers, by the way, are the Vision and Scarlet Witch. But where you play that out and you really think in as, quote, realistic, close quote, a way as you can about what it would look like if they were trying to knock each other out or physically defeat each other and you just keep running that until you're out of heroes. Can I actually interject here? You can. So there is a, a Stan Lee video, like from an interview going... I saw it a couple of years ago on Twitter, uh -oh. where 
he talks about the question of like who would win in a fight, Spider Man or Iron Man, and he says the answer is whose name is on the cover of the book. <laughs> like it's not a objective question; it's all about the narrative. And I think that that's actually kind of a thing where I, I feel like games like Champions lean into that idea of like, oh, we're going to figure out like everything's got a number so we can sort of objectively say who's better, Hulk or, you know, Abomination or something like that. Whereas when you're actually writing these stories, there are all sorts of reasons and all sorts of narrative tricks or circumstances that could cause anyone to come out on top. Yes. I'm going to divide myself into like Triplicate Girl, who became Duo Damsel. It was very tragic. Uh, In order to answer to respond to that in two different ways. Okay. One is the point of playing a game like Champions, which is team-oriented and super crunchy, and the point of a big two company publishing a comic called Contest of Champions is that all the names are on the cover, or none of the names are on the cover. Same with Secret Wars. You don't know who would win if you don't know whose name is on the cover. Mm, Okay, that's a good point. Part of the fun of these stories, if they're the kind of stories that you like, is of playing this out in a setting where you do not expect or in an RPG want the GM to show up and cause someone to win. And that's that's why these settings exist. The other half of me is going to say, those aren't my favorite kind of stories. Like, <laughs> I don't actually want to see Monel punch Ultra Boy five million times. I want to see Dream Girl show up and say, Cosmoy, like Phantom Girl, can you get them to stop this? This is stupid. This is all about who gets to date me and I don't want to date anyone. <laughs> Things like that, where the exchange of fighting physical powers is a way to think about feelings. Mm. And so the, if, if what you want is Contest of Champions, then you want a very crunchy game designed to pretend that superheroes are real and their powers can be measured. And Champions is literally designed for that. I would argue that it is over-designed for that. Yeah. And, and this is a, a problem if you want to tell stories. But if you want a game where superheroes have emotional high-stakes conflicts with other superheroes that can destroy a team or change the emotional dynamics of the team or generally have real consequences and you don't know who's going to win, that is what Masks is designed to do. Not every session, but as part of a a climax to an arc or as an unusual and even shocking event when team members really get into a fight and the dice rolls and the mechanics of Masks track feelings and then you narrate what happens, what the, the dice and the feelings require in a way that involves saying where the lasers go. And uh, the examples of this on the comic book page would be the stories in which Logan gets into a fight with Piotr because he thinks correctly that Piotr's being a bad boyfriend. <clears throat> or other stories in which the conflict is resolved when the feelings are resolved and you don't really want to go 15 rounds or see a knockout. And and Masks is for that. Right, exactly. And and so yeah, I think with, with Masks, it's there are some PC on PC 
mechanisms around, like, I think, like, Provoke has some things. Like, the number of dice rolls that would actually dictate what happens in the fight are very few, but it would be for those situations where you do want that falling out, you do want tempers to get heated and and people to come to blows, and then everyone has to deal with that. And the team goes off into their own corners and... People are supporting each other or bad-mouthing each other or that kind of thing. So that could that could be a lot of fun. Can I add to that a little bit? Sure. So I, Masks is, is designed for inter-team combat to absolutely be the exception. It's not something that, that is supposed to happen, but it does happen. And um, the provoke move, the provoke move and the defend move both have inter-team stuff going on. And I think Masks is especially designed for... Logan punches Colossus and then Storm shows up and says, come on, guys. And then Logan says, no, I'm really angry and tries to punch Colossus again because the defend move, which is plus savior, if if things happen, if you're defending a PC, including if you're defending a PC from another PC, and then the comfort and support move has interesting consequences if you are protecting someone emotionally from a friend from another PC. So I would actually argue that this is, that masks is designed for that. (laughs) <laughs> um, but it's especially designed for inter-team combat where there are more than two team members having the combat. More than two? I would say I would say two. Like I feel like masks masks would be probably the sweet spot of there is some disagreement between two of the people, and then the team as a whole has to resolve that. Oh, that's that's exactly right. I just mean you you get the third and fourth and fifth team members who get to either try to resolve the conflict. Oh, okay, yeah, which yeah. is a Which is a, a comfort and support move. But I'd say it's a two-sided conflict, not a five-sided conflict. Oh, that's right, yeah. Also, I five-sided, is, is there any system where you would actually want a five-sided conflict between PCs? I feel like doing this in Champions would take five hours for 30 <laughs> seconds to pass in game time. Well, you know, I don't know. So we have not played Pasiones de las Pasiones. Um, is a telenovela game and does have a superhero playset. I have a feeling in that one, people can definitely be all up in each other's business. And It's on our list, right? Yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe that's the answer. Passion de las pasiones. Who knows? Thirsty Sword Lesbians, I think, is something to look to as a game where it's... It does actually have some optional fighting rules that make the combat part a little bit more mechanically interesting. I I think there might be like sort of almost like a rock, paper, scissors bit into it, but its thing is... Rock, paper, swords. (laughs) Right. That the fighting is not about the fighting, it's about something else. So I think that there, if you wanted to focus in on the actual conflict part and sort of what people's feelings are, what they're trying to get out of the fight, Thirsty Sword Lesbians might help you there. Whereas I think masks would be more like like an aftermath kind of thing. I like that idea very much. And also, my thirsty sword lesbian girlfriend appears to be secretly evil and is trying to save the world and doesn't care what people think of her. And that's the source of the conflict. So one thing actually I was I was thinking about, and I want to kind of come back to this, is in sort of the who would win kind of questions. Mm-hmm. I have mentioned this on the show before. My all-time favorite superhero character and comic book run is called The Unbeatable Squirrel Girl. It is also literally in the title that she does not lose. And what I've found appealing about that is, you know, it's not so much a feelings book. It's a 
it's a cleverness book. It's a problem-solving book, right? Doreen does not physically incapacitate every villain that she fights, though sometimes she does, and it's delightful, Mm -hmm. uh, Whiplash. Um, But is most of the time figuring out ways to solve the problem or de-escalate things in kind of a, a way that Again, where you where you fix you fix the issue, you help somebody who maybe was a villain before and is now uh, turned to a life of building demolition. Yes, are there games for that? Is is kind of I think one of my big questions going into year two is is there a Squirrel Girl game? And now, I mean, she's a, it's it's kind of a solo book. I mean, she has pals, but it is a solo book. I mean, this would be a team book. But thinking about mechanisms for cleverness around solving the villain's problems or solving other things rather than just like roll to hit. Yes, yes. I've got several answers to that. Uh, if you are listening to our show and you haven't read the Ryan North, Eric Henderson, Squirrel Girl run, uh, you know, it's out there. We recommend it. Yeah, but by the omnibus. Uh, I just got it. It's huge and beautiful. All the Squirrel Girl. If, if I have every individual issue as an individual issue and a couple of trade paperbacks, do I still need the omnibus? I mean, I got it. That doesn't answer my question. Well, okay, one of us has a Squirrel Girl tattoo, and it's not you. So I think that, like, my opinions on this are probably not universal. <laughs> no, but I take them very seriously. So Squirrel Girl does a number of things, right? It, Squirrel Girl has a strong preference for and ability in, a strength in, solving problems by talking them out and, you know, addressing the root causes of villainy uh, rather than punching people. Squirrel Girl is also a solo book where her way of solving problems is consistently at the center. And Squirrel Girl is a funny book. It has many jokes. I think the last two of those, something that is often openly comedic and something that centers one way of solving problems and one character who's good at that are very hard to do in an RPG setting, and I can't think of an RPG that does them. But we've played a couple of RPGs where there is either easily available narrative mechanisms or a soft narrative preference for solving problems in ways that aren't punching. One of them, again, is masks, where (laughs) you can GM masks in a way that most fights are resolved in some other way by a successful pierce the mask, a successful uh, persuade with best interest if someone has adult moves, uh, by a villain making a decision when a couple of villain conditions are met. Uh, Masks can absolutely be played that way. And you and I have both seen multiple villain conflicts in masks that are resolved that way temporarily or permanently. The other games that we've played that lend themselves to non-combat conflict resolution have been the games that involved a lot of playing card decks and a lot of narration Mm. and where combat is described on the basis of what cards came out of the deck rather than on the basis of, you know, roll to hit, roll to do damage. So I think that you could play C issue X as a game where everything really interesting is resolved in some way other than whose punch lands. I mean, I think, like, actually, anyone can wear the mask. Yeah. Maybe the best the best bet because it is a solo hero. Yeah. And it is a game where, you know, resolution is, is you know, the die tells you how successful this is and sort of if there are consequences. It says nothing about the means by which you do it. And so you could entirely narrate Squirrel Girl-esque solutions to this. 
The other thing that I'm thinking about is wondering about a hack of something like Brindlewood Bay or Apocalypse Keys or whatever, or sort of the, there are clues and then the, it's the player's job to put them together. I think that might work as a Squirrel Girl game because one of, one of the things that, here's, here's the thing, when I GM, mm-hmm. sometimes if it's like, oh, someone rolls a Pierce the Mask and they're like, you know, it boils down to like, okay, well, what is this person's deal? Mm-hmm. You know, how can I get them to stop? Mm-hmm. Like that is the player asking the question. And then it's on the GM to be like, well, you can get them, you know, do this or that. That doesn't always give the player a lot of opportunity to be creative and clever and problem solving in that. Sometimes it's, okay, the GM comes up with the solution. Like the answer to the Pierce the Mass question is essentially the solution coming from the GM. And yes, there can be some creativity around like, oh, how are we going to get them on the phone with their parent or something like that? Yeah. So, you know, I'm not saying that there's there's zero player creativity there, but if the game's focus is on problem solving, I would want to see mechanisms where that's really in the hands of the players to have to be clever or putting mechanical things together than than maybe what you tend to get in masks. I agree. Okay, that was it. Hope we answered your question, Ryan. (laughs) (laughs) Questions, multiple questions. All right, Team Up Moves pal, Dean. Hi, Dean. Z has a lot of questions. Why don't you, why don't you read off the first one? Okay. What character in the podcast that is not your character would you, I guess, most want to play? What do you think, Steph? I think it's Mina from Mutant City Blues. Okay, which is, I mean, you want to talk about girlfriends who are secretly evil. She killed a man. Well, that wasn't, she's complicated. She's complicated. (laughs) She's just trying to take care of Kerrigan. Yeah. She just wants to protect the people she loves and has a fairly narrow kind of horizon for who's worth protecting. And I I would like to That's that's a it. wonderfully like uh kind way of putting that. A narrow horizon of who's worth protecting. Well, and and I think we're going to see it grow. I think if if she comes back. <laughs> Certainly if you play her, yeah. Yes. One of the things we've done uh, in a year of team up moves is to build out not just you know a city and then an alternate version of that city and some stuff in space and so, some futures and some cat people, but a lot of characters and it it really might happen. I think that some of the characters who we've seen, some of the the PCs that we've seen might come back or, you know, with Fiona's blessing, an NPC or two might come back as a PC. We might see some of these characters built in other systems and see their further adventures if we decide to do that. And, uh, you know, I would love to see Mina just, you know, grow and change and maybe think about uh, being less murdery. It, It happens. People have face turns. Uh, so yeah, I would, would love to. There's also the whole sort of, yeah, people think I'm a terrible sort of vampire person, but like, no, that's... She wants people to... I, okay, well... She does now. The conflict here now. of us having different perspectives on this character might be... Well, yeah. no, no, you built, you built the character and who she is now. <laughs> uh, the question is, does she have the opportunity to grow and change uh, by helping her girlfriend? And I, I want her to. All right, so mine on this is, I think, Mandy... Core, aka Manticore, mm-hmm. affects his character from Exceptionals, who is a elementary school teacher and also a seven-foot Manticore person. There's a lot of opportunities for physical comedy and herboism and all of the things that I look for in a character. So I think that she would be who, who I would want to play. That is right. And um, you know, someday you might get to because someday I might GM an episode. Mm. Uh, it, it it 
could happen. It, it might never happen. But I, I want to say that that Fiona playing Manticore, which I would love to see, would also be taking that character in a new direction and having some character growth because in the arc of Exceptionals that we ran, Manticore's sort of seven-foot-tallness and and physical awkwardness and desire to be super great with kids and, and do good was not comedic. It was much more, in at least my memory when I re-listened to it, it was much more about figuring out how to be this misfit and figuring out that you have a place in the world. Mm-hmm. And it was was not, there, there wasn't a lot of Marx Brothers business, but there absolutely could be with that character later on in that character's growth. All right, next question. What character is most like you? This question scares me. <laughs> Do you want to answer first? Yeah, it's Emily. Like, look, um, from our mundane supernatural life, there is a lot of a lot of me, I would say, in, in Emily's uh, struggles with social anxiety and ADHD-ness and uh, having something that she was working on getting eaten by moths, uh, yeah. all of that. It was such a sad oh, moment, the moth. It's a devastating feeling. It really is. I, I love playing that with you so much. And I was mm-hmm. afraid when I saw this question that the answer was going to be Emily's partner, the all-too-devoted, uh, resourceful robot, uh, Gima, G-I-M-A. Mm-hmm. But perhaps, fortunately, that's not my answer at this time. My answer <laughs> is, realistically, Anemone from Champions, which that was an interesting arc to play out. Uh, that was an, an interesting you know, set of episodes of our show. But that's a character who I really felt very comfortable inhabiting. She looks very strange. You can draw her in a way that she might be kind of cute or she might be like, really Lovecraftian horror. Either way, it depends on the artist. She's pretty durable. She can, she can take some punishment. She can, you know, outlast things. She really, really wants to help people and use her weirdness to just go out and do things and, and superhero. She is really into her high responsibility job, even though she feels too young for it. And she has both kind of a lot of finger dexterity stuff and issues with physical contact and weird skin conditions, uh, you know, all of which I have. And if, if, if Anemone were a Masks character, which she may someday be, she would have very high freak and savior and um, low mundane and just be be driven by just wanting to use her weirdness to help people all the time and perhaps running herself into the ground so she had to chill out in an aquarium for several hours reading books and playing with sea life and hoping that the adults didn't mind having her around. So yeah, that's me. All right. So next thing that Dean asks is, what scene did we most enjoy playing this year? I think in the interest of time, if we could limit this to two each. Okay. I know that's hard, uh, but I would say my runner-up would be the draining the pool in Cypher System mm-hmm. <laughs> of just like, you know what? Let's do some math. Now, the math is also wrong. Yeah. Which I think makes it better. We're we're off by like huge fact, huge orders of magnitude because we rather than doing eight five-foot cubes, we did one 40-foot cube. And yeah. But I love how that turned out. I think it was perfect. It was, it was wonderful. Um, so that's number two. But I think number one for me is is the climax of Spectaculars. And I'm realizing that in the 11 games, we very rarely have face-off with supervillain. 
in the climax of this story. And some of that is the types of games that we're playing. Some of that is the pacing Mm -hmm. for why, you know, Mm -hmm. the Captain Blep fight was a little rushed. But to have that fight between, I mean, well, among all of you, but really, Sean McGuire is Lily, and then the mysterious stranger, it's Gooseberry, pals. Yeah. It was Gooseberry. Yeah. Some of those die rolls of just the, the failed role on the drowning in money bit, it was bombastic. It was loud. It was funny. Um, I... I tremendously enjoyed playing playing that scene in particular. Yeah. How about you, Steph? I love the climax of Spectaculars. I loved the last sort of act of Exceptionals where we sort of got away, but everyone's life had changed. And um, I loved the moment near the end of City of Shining Stars where Ryan, whose train car, literally became the city's infrastructure. And <laughs> if, because I love infrastructure, if we were going and how... Ryan then established this connection to Patricia, a Silver Age superhero who had been, you know, raised in part by Maxine, and how in resolving the the major interdimensional battle of that arc, we were able to celebrate public infrastructure and create a new engineering-based disembodied superhero with like a new best friend so they could grow up together and lay the foundation for more storytelling. At the time I was reading Deb Chakra's, I think it's forthcoming now, book about why infrastructure is important and how it works and how it can sort of save us. Uh, That is C-H-A-C-H-R-A, Deb Chakra's book, How Infrastructure Works. And... That's one of the reasons I loved the climax of City of Shining Stars. All right. Final question here from Dean. What current comics creators do you want to write or draw? What story about these characters? Why don't you go first on that, Steph? Okay. I just started making a list and then I ended. I just narrowed it down to two. I want Kelly Thompson, who does well with a lot of different genre stuff, and David Baldian, who does pretty realistic-y super characters doing the follow-up to Mutant City Blues, whatever happened next with those detective characters. And I want uh, America Tamaki and either Jillian Tamaki, her sister, or the great Sophie Campbell doing a masks story with those masks characters. So here's the thing about Sophie Campbell. She does the most amazing hair. Yes. Like, you look at Glory, you look at Gem and the Holograms. So, like, we would need to, like, I, I want to see those masks characters with just, like, giant, multicolored, amazing Sophie Campbell hair. Have you seen Braid's hair? It's constantly changing. Very, okay. Perfect fit then. Mine would be, I mean, like, okay, sure. Look, North Henderson, you're right. I mean, <laughs> thank you. You know, I, um, I'm consistent, if nothing else. I would want it, like the Clay in the Sky story, I think. Um, you know, going into Zephyr's dungeon, there's a lot of environmental storytelling and humor. I mean, I can just imagine... Just like the personality, like the three personalities that we had there between like the very full of themselves game master and literal dog, mm-hmm. Song Wolf, and then this very detached objective robot. Yeah. I mean, geez, I would love North writing, Ryan North writing some of that dialogue. And um, I think it would, that, that would be my dream, I think. I would love that too. I'm trying to think of whether Erica Henderson's art style would do justice to all of those characters, and I'm not sure, but I'd love to have her draw Song Wolf. No, it would be good. She'd be good. She's always good. She's always She's good. Amazing. Hi, Erica Henderson, if you're listening. We love your work. <laughs> now, Allie asks, how do we decide what games to play 
next. And I think that's maybe a little bit of a segue into talking about what could be coming next on the show. The way we do this is we've got the list. (laughs) We've got the 59 game list. And it comes down to really trying to mix it up and move from superhero business game to more storytelling, intimate game, kind of change things around is, I think, a big part of it. Yes. We, we try not to do two games that have similar foci one after the other. And then the other part is, is guest availability. Um, yes, it is. Is its, is its own fun challenge, but, uh, you know, trying to match the right people to the right games. I think we've mostly, mostly succeeded in that regard. So and we've got some, some wonderful guests, uh, some of whom are very definitely scheduled, uh, you know, barring acts of God, and some of whom are probably scheduled. So we can't tell you about them yet, but we're excited. So looking back then, Steph, on a year of doing this, mm-hmm. what do you feel like we have learned about superhero stories, about superhero games? What comes to mind? Oh, uh, we've learned that, that like, we love doing this and we love meeting people through doing this and learning more about the people who are already friends, who have become friends of the show. We have learned, uh, in a way, you know, getting, getting back to, to more of the show and, and less us. The biggest, oh, wow, I had no idea, at least I've learned, is that the gumshoe system is great and that Mutant City Blues does a whole lot of things that that we really like and it's one of it's one of the games that I I didn't know it existed a year ago and now I want to play it again. I might not get to because it is very high GM prep. So someone has to GM it unless I try to GM it. So yeah, I would say that that Gumshoe is definitely like the biggest surprise hit yeah. for me uh, from I think like what I was thinking about going into it and then like how that actually feels at the table uh, ended up being fairly different and in, in a good way. Yeah. So yeah, uh, Mutant City Blues. Weirdly obscure. I feel like the other Gumshoe games get a lot more attention. Um, you know, Trail of Cthulhu, Knights Black Agents, but uh, don't sleep on Mutant City Blues. Just play as private investigators. And we, yeah, we did sort of work to be sure we weren't uh, uncritically cheering on uh, official police departments for a number of reasons that should be obvious in 2023. It, it worked. It had emotions. It had feelings along with clues. It really illuminated the inner lives of NPCs and PCs. And the pacing uh, did not get bogged down and it did not get sped up. Uh, yeah, Gumshoe is good. So this is, it makes a good segue from Mutant City Blues, which is, Games that have less GM prep, and I think that would include the the card deck based games that we've we've played that that sometimes operate on on more of a describe the narrative instead of act everything out level, but other games too. Games that have less GM prep are games with more player freedom and more player obligation or opportunity to build out the world. And when I, just as one player, started doing this with Thelia. I had a strong preference for games where the players were like actors and not like authors, where you got to play your character, but the world existed around them. And you as a player didn't get to decide where the subway lines go or whether there is a labor dispute at the community college or whether there's a volcano in the middle of town. That was for the GM. The GM builds the world and the player 
becomes the PC for the length of the game. And I still love doing that, but that is putting a lot on the GM. And I have learned to enjoy sometimes, especially on the show, the systems and the approaches to RPGs in which the player is doing more world building and the GM has planned less out and less out in advance. And the player has some, at least a little bit of co-author function rather than completely inhabiting the PC and only knowing what the PC knows. Yeah. And, and, and I, that's, that is where I like to live for a number of reasons. One is that it, it keeps things fresher for me if I have to be reacting to setting input and kind of other notes from the players. And also, I think it's important just in RPGs in general, like at any table, you know, whether you're recording it or not, to really make sure that there's an understanding that the responsibility for fun Mm. is shared Mm -hmm. in very high prep and sort of this like GM as deity kind of, you know, approach to RPGs. It's, It's almost like the players are sitting down expecting to be entertained mm. by the GM and expecting like, okay, this is, you know, you're, you're going to tell this this story. And, and maybe, you know, maybe this is like a Little Mercer effect stuff or, or or whatever, but it's this sense of... What is what is a Little Mercer effect? Oh, you don't know the Mercer effect. I don't know the Mercer effect. So it's, it's the idea that a, a phenomenon that some people have noticed in new players to RPGs who have watched Matt Mercer, the GM of Critical Role, think that all GMing... All D&D is of that quality of, or that polish of storytelling and personification and that kind of thing that you get from, like, professional voice actors who are doing D&D for their, as their full-time job. Mm. Um, but yeah, so so when you when you bring in more shared player stuff and, and are able to, like, facilitate or encourage, encourage that bit of detachment between the player and their character, that helps ensure that the player feels like they're in the role of, oh no, I also need to make this fun for for the other players, for the GM. I need to choose things that my character will do that are interesting and drive the story forward and come up with an excuse for why it's maybe out of character but necessary for the table. So, you know, it's it's definitely... Uh, you have yeah. persuaded me to, or shown me how to regard a table as more of a collaboration, partly because if you as a player are entirely inhabiting your PC, and at the same time, you are following the golden rule of RPGs, which is try to make sure that the other people at the table are having at least as much fun as you, you sort of have to slice your brain into to avoid having your PC try to pay attention to the emotional status of the other PCs and the other players. That is, the more you see yourself as an author and not an actor, the easier it is to allow your PC to make dumbass decisions or antisocial decisions. (laughs) And this is a real struggle for me. Well, wait, no, I think you want pro-social decisions, but but poor ones. (laughs) Bad decisions, yeah. This This is a real struggle for me to allow my PCs to make in-character, dumbass decisions, except when they're self-sacrificing decisions. That I have no problem with. <laughs> Throw yourself into a jet engine? Yeah, I can do that. Absolutely. We, we may have shown our listeners uh, more of more of me than they want. Uh, I don't know what to do here. 
So one of the things when looking ahead, so I've been, as as Twitter is dying, I've been spending more time on Reddit, <laughs> just in time for it to die, uh, dating this here, June 2023. Are we all still moving to Mastodon? Oh, I don't know. Anyway, it's, a question comes up now and again, where people in like our RPG will ask, what is the best superhero game? And I always sort of, you know, I always feel like as the GM of this podcast, like I should have an answer and I don't. And well, part of it is that like within 10 seconds, someone responds masks and it's like, kind of, yeah, but also only if you want to be teens. And a lot of people are like, I want to do superhero game where I'm not teens. Understandable. You know, 12 seconds after that, someone says GURPS, which I I almost want to like try out as I don't know. I like some some sort of self-flagellation kind of exercise. No, I'm um, the one who throws myself into jet engines. Yeah. But like, but I think that in general, the question is, is for people who want to do a superhero business game, right? Of they want to have big fights, they want abilities on their character sheets that are relating to the special superpowers that they have. Mm-hmm. What is the best super... Have we found the best superhero game? Is, I think, the question. Follow-up question, will we find it next year? And then the one on top of that is, should we even be looking? What are your thoughts? I have three thoughts. Okay. First is, of course, there's no best superhero game, just like there's no best food to eat, although it's durian. Or best song, or best rock band, or, you know best jazz musician. It depends what you want. There's a lot of good ones. Second answer goes back to superheroes aren't one genre. And if you think of RPGs as genre emulators, which is one way to think about them, as as machines to tell different kinds of stories in a way that's open-ended and collaborative, then you can ask, what's the best game for telling a particular kind of story using characters with costumed or dual identities, pro-social missions, and unusual powers, which is, I think, the Peter Coogan definition of a superhero, which I like. Mm -hmm. So if the story you want to tell involves fighting and using powers and maybe escalating your powers and demonstrating your physical powers and having the game mechanics based on those powers and is combat-oriented, a superhero business story, we have not found the best one. One reason we haven't found the best one is that there are two different ways to answer that. One is with a crunchy system that tries to simulate the real world and requires you to sort of think about how many pounds per square inch your punch lands and, you know, exactly how far in actual yards or meters or kilometers your jet boots can take you. That is what Champions is designed to do. We saw some of the delights and challenges of that when we played Champions. I don't know that a lot of existing systems are designed both for real-world do-the-math simulation and for superhero business. Uh, The Cypher system had a lot of, like, how many cubic feet is this? But the Cypher system isn't really designed for superhero business. It's designed for acquiring gadgets and exploring places. So the other way you can crunchily simulate superhero business, which a couple of the games we've played do, and we're going to play a couple more, is to create something that looks like a big two comic book that is focused on fighting, to create something that looks like the kinds of Justice League stories where Red Tornado and Superman fight a brainwashed Martian Manhunter and, I don't know, like the Cheetah and Darkseid. That can be done. We've played a couple of games that try to do it 
more or less well. I think Spectaculars is, I, if, if, if I had to choose between playing Spectaculars again and Sentinel Comics again, I would choose Spectaculars. Interesting. Yeah. Sentinel Comics just had a lot of, a lot of crunchiness that I found difficult, but you know, I, I'd play them both. Uh, and we do have other games ahead that simulate superhero business as actually seen in comic books that is combat-oriented and powers-oriented. And I think that is an intelligible question that has an answer we haven't found yet. It's interesting that that's your take on Spectaculars versus Sentinel Comics. I, I would go the other way. I think that Sentinel Comics could be like a recommend this. I, I mean, maybe not, just in the sense of it requires a little bit of, I don't know, a different perspective or different something that we didn't quite hit maybe in our playthrough, but if you got, would sort of unlock that game's full potential. I think that Spectaculars is cool for what it does as a, like, just a solid intro RPG. Like, gets people up and running. Like, if you want to move from board games to RPGs, this is a wonderfully gentle on-ramp. I think that the longevity of that game, because of how how straightforward the dice stuff is and, and how the the challenge dice thing doesn't quite fully come together in all circumstances. Yeah, I wrote about that. There's a, there's a newsletter article about that, about sort of how you can, like managing resources, I think, managing, like managing player resources and that how spectacular is because like you reset to full health at the beginning of every action scene. You can't even like plink away at someone's health in the like interlude things and make that matter. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I think like looking ahead, I, I mean... I would like to play Mutants and Masterminds. I think if, especially if we find someone who like has a history with that game, because that does have a, a long history. It's a, it's another one of these yeah. uh, seminal games up there with champions. Uh, I'm, I'm curious to kind of how it, how it holds up, um, but I would like to give that a shot. The reprint is on the way uh, from Kickstarter for that. I'm also curious about Galaxies in Peril. So this is. A an update of Worlds in Peril, which is a, a PBTA superhero game uh, that I think has been you know so fully eclipsed by masks and is early enough that some people kind of forget about it. Galaxies in Peril is a Blades in the Dark, uh, like a Forged in the Dark game. So I'm kind of curious to see how that works with superheroes, especially since like the rhythm of that, where you have missions and you have downtime, I think matches a pretty good superhero business pattern of storytelling is that the system where you get flashbacks yes Ooh. at least blades in the dark and and other forge in the dark games have it uh i would assume they're in galaxies in peril but but hopefully we'll uh we'll find out i'm in games with people who've played it and love it i've never played blades in the dark so other stuff to look forward to me not gming <laughs> at least once our good friend Becca Petunia is going to be coming back to GM Phase Rip for us. We should say what Phase Rip is. Yes, this is a Marvel D20 game, a Marvel licensed game. So, uh, yeah, we may be playing some of our favorite superheroes in this digression from New Arcadia. Are you going to play Squirrel Girl? Yeah, I am. I have, to, I have to make a whole bunch of decisions. This does allow me to play Kate Bishop if I want. This is true. There's Capers, which is set in the 20s. It is a Prohibition-era mobsters and folks, but with superpowers. 
that uh, we've got some some real good guests lined up for that. That should be a ton of fun. But coming back from our little break, we're going to be doing Marvelous. So this is a belonging outside belonging game. So think Wander Home or Dream Askew and Dream Apart. It's GM-less. It's diceless, And it is very masks. So this is what if masks, but no GM. And uh, I'm really looking forward to it. I don't like to say the names of the guests until like we have the recording like, feel like, if, like if, literally written down. Like yeah. it feels like it jinxes it. I agree. Um, I agree. Trust We've got me. amazing, amazing guests. Trust me. Really wonderful people. And so very much looking forward to that and kind of seeing like, is this does does this scratch a mask's itch in an interesting way? And what else does it bring to teen superhero stories? So that is uh, that is coming up next on Team Up Moves. I'm vibrating with excitement. I am nearly insubstantial with excitement. I am glowing with excitement about playing these games with you and with our guests. Glowing with excitement is solid anemone behavior right there, Stephanie. Oh, oh yeah. Will we ever go back to the aquarium? I kind of feel like we have to. I think that this is being built up with ever more ominous adjectives about like how out of place it seems to be. So, uh, yeah, I think the aquarium has secrets that that I think we have not fully delved into. I was really hoping that you would say that, and I didn't. I didn't, <laughs> you know, want to box you in or you know stick you in a tank of water for that one. But I'm I'm glad that's the answer. All right. Well, it's probably been about an hour. Thank you for listening this far and being with us on this wonderfully self-indulgent journey. I hope that you have enjoyed listening to it, dear listener. And we are excited for another year of Team Up Moves. Yeah, as always, please you know like and recommend us on your favorite platforms and please get in touch. We are show at teamupmoves.com, all one word. And we are at Team Up Moves on Twitter, as long as you know Twitter is a thing. And what other platforms are we on? Team Up Moves at Dice.Camp on Mastodon, I think is the other. That sounds good. Should we have an Instagram account? No. Should we? I mean, I don't, maybe. Do you want to take pictures of things? Yeah, maybe. Maybe. (laughs) Once we have a photography-based hero in the game, we'll see. Cool, cool, cool. All right. Well, until next time, take care, pals. Take care. Thanks for listening. Now that our break is over, we are going to be back in two weeks with a new game. We're going to be playing Marvelous, the teen superhero belonging outside belonging game written by S. Donnelly and Hannah Rogers. And to play it with us are a couple of podcast superstars, Emily Booza of the Whelmed Young Justice podcast and Jay Edidin from Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men are both with us to play this game, do some characters, talk about the game, the back matter, all that good stuff. And that's going to be with our July run, starting off year two of Team Up Moves. Team Up Moves is a production of Fiona Hopkins and Stephanie Burt, copyright 2023. We're sometimes online these days at Team Up Moves on Twitter and Team Up Moves at Dice.Camp on Mastodon. And of course, show at TeamUpMoves.com for the email. Our website is TeamUpMoves.com. And if you go there, you can see all of our episodes, all of our runs, all of our guest bios. And also subscribe to our newsletter, which we send out most of the time. 
when we take that break between runs just to, you know, keep in touch, still be pals, write a couple things, that sort of stuff. Our theme music is Play by Sleepyhead. Find more of their music at sleepyheadrockband.com. And finally, if you got to the end of our self-indulgent annual episode, you must like us. So why don't you tell a friend or leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you look for your podcast to help others find Team Up Moves and, and grow that audience. Word of mouth is the best way to help the show. Take care, pals.